Hey, deserving listeners, I'm going to do one of my favorite things today, which is to read your emails and respond to them. Let's get to it. This first email says, in one of your reaction videos, you talked about the bias most people have towards relationships with a big age gap. What you stated in that video was exactly what I needed to hear. It made me feel lighter and made me realize that me and my partner are not sick. I've been hiding our relationship from many important people in my life. If you were involved in a relationship with a big age gap, how would you deal with revealing its existence to others? Would hiding it from certain people be the smarter way? End of email. Yeah, hard to say. I might have your family members listen to our deep dive on age gaps. It's called Age Difference in Relationships. It's on YouTube. It was published back in 2017. And we go into all the, me and Umberto go into all the research, or I go into all the research and Umberto reacts to it. The The other points I might make is that there's a difference between exploitative relationships and non-exploitative. And sometimes age has to do with that. So we're not so concerned about age. That's That's a heuristic that we, it's a shortcut that we're trying to determine if a relationship is exploitative, if it's harmful, or if one person automatically doesn't have power. So two 13-year-olds in a relationship, most people would say, okay, that's fine. Or two 17-year-olds, they'd say, okay, that's fine. So why can't a 17-year-old date a 45-year-old? Why can't a 15-year-old student date a you know their teacher who is 35 years old well the it's not the age it's the exploitation of the younger person and we tend to uh, look to age as a shortcut for determining the exploitation potential of a relationship so that's one thing that i would explain to your friends would be like so i have something to tell you i'm involved with this relationship he or she or they are this much older or this much younger. And I know there's a lot of stigma around this, but I want to explain something that us as a society, we will stigmatize this for some good reasons, but it's become kind of misunderstood. You know, the the original reason why we were worried about age gaps was because we were worried about the younger person being exploited, being harmed, being controlled, not having power. Well, the fact that I'm 25 and my partner is 55, my partner is not exploiting me. (laughs) I'm a 25-year-old adult. So everything's fine. There's nothing strange about it. There's nothing... There's something odd in terms of statistics. It's it's different in terms of statistics. But, you know, super short people and super tall people are also odd in terms of statistics. We don't stigmatize them and pathologize them just because they're very tall or very short. Well, just because there's a big age gap doesn't mean we automatically have to stigmatize that. So uh, the conclusion that I came to was that as long as the younger person is past a certain age, and it's hard to know exactly what age that should be. For a lot of people, that would be 18. For some people, it might be a little younger. For some people, it might be a little older, like 22 or something. There's absolutely no clinical problem with an age gap. And it's uh, only reacted to by people negatively because it's just not the social norm in the same way that it's not a social norm for black and white people to get married or for two women to get married. Just because we look at something and it doesn't feel comfortable to you at first does not mean it's pathological. 
Also, uh, research has found that there is some effect. The only effect that I can find in the research, uh, the only difference that I could find between large uh, age gaps and, and smaller age gaps is that there is a greater chance of the relationship not lasting as long, particularly if the age gap is 10 plus years. But there's a lot of possible reasons for that. You know, one one uh, sort of tempting conclusion is to say, well, a relationship that is that has that much of an age gap, you, you're inherently in, in, incompatible from the beginning. And okay, but there are a lot of other possible reasons. For example, marginalization. This person that just emailed in, they can't even tell their family members and friends that they're in this relationship. What kind of a toll does that take on this relationship? In the same way that gay relationships continue to experience marginalization, it takes a toll on the relationship. It's just easier not to be in the relationship than it is to be in the relationship in a lot of communities. Also, Age gaps are uh, also associated with second and third marriage. Uh, so, you know, if if you're so, let's say you're a 55 year old and you're with a 30 year old. Well, the 55 year old, in all likelihood, is in at least their second marriage, and there's a there's an association with second marriages and third marriages. They tend not to last as long, on average. Than first marriages, so it could just be an association on that level. Anyway, so but even with that, even with the small signal of uh, age gaps being associated with shorter term relationships, that doesn't mean the relationship is bad. It just means it's shorter term. There's nothing wrong with a relationship ending before you die. Most relationships end before you die. Most romantic relationships end. Uh, you know, after a few years. So there's nothing wrong with that. And we really do need to stop marginalizing and literally bullying these people in the same way that we bully continually, but particularly in the past, gay relationships, gay and lesbian relationships. We used to stigmatize them and bully them and pathologize them for literally no reason. And we're doing the same thing to age gap in relationships. And I find that it's one of the last things that I find that people can just uh, make fun of and pathologize without any information, without any research behind them and, and totally get away with it. There's no movement of large age gaps, uh, relationships doing a march. You know, there's there's gay pride, but there's no like large age gap pride. And I find that when I talk about this with people and in, including some of you listening right now, have a really hard time adjusting their minds because for so long – uh, and you've you've probably never heard anything to the contrary that age gaps are terrible. And again, I want to be clear: when a 25 year old dates a 15 year old, then in all likelihood, harm is occurring and exploitation is occurring. It's not automatic, but it's enough of a uh, you know potentiality that we just want to say, look, 25 year olds should not date 15 year olds. There's no reason for that. Let's let's just not do that. So if you're 22 and you're dating a 32-year-old or you're you know 25 and you're dating a 55-year-old, it's a completely different thing. The other thing I'll say is that you can have two people of the same age and one person can be exploiting the other person. You can a younger person can also exploit an older person. A 25-year-old can exploit a 55-year-old. So age once you pass a certain maturity level is not a good indication of whether or not exploitation is happening now it could can can you know when when you look at all the various 55 20 you know 55 year olds with 25 year olds 
uh, is exploitation happening more than average? I don't know. I, I, had, I didn't see any research on that. But that's possible. But it certainly isn't a slam dunk conclusion that we can draw. So you ask me, you know, uh, what would I say to my family? <laughs> um, like I said, I might have them listen to the episode that we did. Honestly, I just hey, listen to this. It's it's almost two hours long, but you know, it's for a family member. I would also really just try to appeal to whatever they're worried about. So I would, I would. This is always the people have that people ask me a lot of questions along these lines. Uh, just generally speaking, like what? How do I approach this? Well. When you're approaching a conversation that you think might not go very well, the problem – and, and you're worried that the other person is going to get angry or disapproving or something. The, behind that anger, behind that disapproval, behind that judgment is some kind of hurt or some kind of fear. So you want to intuit what the hurt, what the pain is or what the fear is. And to family members, if you're the younger one, for example, the family members will be worried that you're being exploited that you're going to be harmed by the relationship or that the relationship is doomed from the start because you don't share the same sort of culture of, you know, you're not in the same cohort. And so you want to belay those fears. You want to say, so yeah, I, I see that you're a little judgmental about it. You're a little unsure about it. You, you don't support this, my relationship with this person. What are your fears? What are you worried about specifically? And they'll be like, well, I, I worry that the relationship is doomed from the start. And you could say like, well, we've been together a long time and it's going pretty well. And really any relationship could be doomed from the start. And when I dated people my own age, it's not like that worked out any better than this did. And they're like, well, I'm worried that uh, you know they're using you or you know, something like that. You'd be like, well, I'm here to tell you that's not happening. We have equal power. They might say, well, I'm worried that other people are going to look at you funny. And you say, well, Thank you for that. And people do look at me funny, including you, by the way. And that's not a reason to end a relationship. Gay people shouldn't end a relationship because people look at them funny, right? Black and white couples shouldn't break up because people look at them funny. That's not fair to the couple, right? Okay, we can all agree on that. Um, so, you know, just do your best to try to belay fears. Now, anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from a anonymous, an anonymous upper tier patron. By the way, uh, my wife makes fun of me. Some, you know, there's a difference between saying a and an, right? You say an apple and you say a tree. Well, I'm a stickler for that and I really try to follow that rule. I took French in high school, so maybe that's a part of it. I don't know why it's connected to me, but it is. But when I'm t talking on the podcast, I am being very careful with what I'm saying and I'm also trying to think in advance of talking. And I sometimes will will say a, knowing that I'm going to say a noun after that, but I don't know the exact noun I'm going to use. And I will very often default to saying a, and then I realize, oh, I need to say the next word. And so I just did that with a anonymous upper tier patron. I, I, in my brain, if you could see the the ticker tape of my brain, you would see that I, I said A without knowing I was going to say anonymous. Does that make sense to people? Because I think some listeners actually, uh, it bothers them, <laughs> as it would me as well. But it's just because my brain doesn't work very fast. Okay, so an anonymous upper tier patron writes, I was wondering if you could do a podcast on the representation of bipolar in popular culture. I remember a scene in Shutter Island where the protagonist's wife kills their three young children 
allegedly after years of suffering from bipolar. I received the same diagnosis of bipolar last year after a particularly severe cycle and have found it difficult to find reliable information about it. Can it really lead to such violence? If not, why is it portrayed this way in art? End of email. Well, the first thing I'll say is that if, you, if, if you're having a hard time finding reliable information, I would ask your clini clinicians. Presumably, you have at least a psychiatrist that you're working with. So they should have a reliable information on it. But yeah, okay. So let's look into the research. And I did a whole episode on this actually uh, back in 2017, I believe, the uh, connection between mental illness and violence. The episode probably is called something along those lines. But so let's look at let's look at the research that um, I found. So really, what we're talking about when we're talking about mental illness and violence is severe mental illness, things like schizophrenia, other kinds of psychotic disorders, bipolar, this sort of thing. Most of us understand that if someone has social anxiety, they are not uh, likely to be violent or that we don't associate social anxiety with violence. Or, I don't know. Maybe we do in our stupid society. But usually what we're talking about when – or I find that when, when people are associating violence or um, you know killing sprees with mental illness, they're usually talking about schizophrenia, delusions, bipolar, this kind of thing. Okay. So let's just look at severe mental illness because um, it's probably relevant to do that. Okay. So according to the research, severe mental illness is a minor risk factor for violent behavior. So it is true that if you suffer from schizophrenia and bipolar, you have a slightly greater risk of violent behavior. And uh, so there's that. And, and some people will try to downplay that, I think, because – they don't want people to associate severe mental illness with violence. The fact, but the fact is, is that it's a very small association. So let's, and, and it's hard to understand statistics. So, so let's look a little deeper here. The overall chance of someone with a mental illness becoming violent and harming you is extremely low. So I don't know the exact statistics, but so let's say that you have uh, someone in your in your circle, your inner circle, family, friends, you know, the, the 20, 30 people in your inner circle. Well, let's say that uh, someone in your inner circle has a severe mental illness, they have schizophrenia. Okay, so you take two people in your inner circle. One person doesn't have schizophrenia and one person does. Well, the person who doesn't have schizophrenia, the likelihood that they're going to hurt you with violence is say 0.01% in any given year, okay? So a very low chance that you know just your, your non-schizophrenic friend harming you is extremely low, right? Violence is actually a pretty rare behavior. Okay, the person with schizophrenia, let's say that they have a 5% increase in chance of harming you. Well, statistically, the chance of them harming you goes from 0.01% to 0.0105%, or I, I don't know the exact stats, but you know what I'm saying. So if there's a slight association with severe mental illness and violence, depending on how you report it in the media, it can, it can either look like, oh, people with schizophrenia are going to hurt me, or people with schizophrenia are never going to hurt me. 
The fact is the average person with schizophrenia or bipolar is never going to hurt anybody. They're not, they're not only not going to hurt you, they're not going to hurt anybody because most people aren't violent. And if you have a psychotic disorder, it slightly increases your risk of violence. But let's look at why. Why does this happen? Why do people with schizophrenia and bipolar and other psychotic disorders, why do they – and I'm framing bipolar as a psychotic disorder because it, it can be sometimes. But the why – you know, the conclusion is, well, it's because they're crazy, right? Well, let's look deeper on that. When you have schizophrenia or bipolar or some other severe mental illness, you are tremendously stigmatized by society. You are probably fired from your job. You're probably ostracized from your friends. You probably don't have access to treatment. You probably need substances to, to cope. You probably will become homeless. You probably have people in your life that are trying to control you to, uh, for various different reasons. So when we find that we take people with severe mental illness and we reduce stigma, we give them access to treatment, we give them effective treatment, we help them comply with treatment by working with them, when, when we do these kinds of things, the, the violent association with these disorders actually diminishes, potentially disappears. So the schizophrenia is statistically not the cause of the violence. It's the ostracization and the marginalization and the dehumanization that we do to these people that seems to be the associative or the moderating factor that will lead to a slight increase in violence. Now, you ask this question, why is it portrayed this way in art? Well, because our society is completely bigoted against people with severe mental illness or mental illness at all. And so art reflects, art reflects culture. You ask the average person, uh, you know, is a schizophrenic person, someone, is, you know, someone who suffers from schizophrenia, are they more likely to hurt you? They'll say, absolutely. Well, where did they, they didn't emerge from the womb with that notion. They got that notion from our society. Our society literally teaches people that people with severe mental illness are going to hurt you. How do, how do we teach people this? Well, a number of different ways. One, in art, in movies, and it's still bad, by the way. There's so many movies like um, – well, I won't go into all the details. But there's a, whenever uh, there's a mental illness portrayed in the movies – because movies like to have fantastical kind of storylines, right, with murder and death and all these other kinds of things. And so, so there's that. Um, and uh, screenwriters know that they can amp up the drama if the violent person has a mental illness. Anyway, so there's that. We also in the news will report uh, stories of people and frame it as if it was the schizophrenia. So let's – again, this is a, a statistical thing. So let's say that a, a man – uh, walks into a McDonald's and kills someone, just a random person. Okay. So let's say that uh, – and, and the news and – and it turns out that he had been diagnosed with bipolar. So in the news, they report it as man with bipolar kills, kills woman in McDonald's. That will be the tagline, right? But was it the bipolar that caused him to kill? Probably not statistically. So what if they had said 
man who was marginalized by society because he had bipolar goes into McDonald's and kills someone. That would change the story, right? Or what if it had nothing to do with bipolar at all? And what if he was was a psychopath? What it, well, maybe he was a sadist. Maybe he maybe he uh, I don't know just decided that he wanted to kill someone. Maybe he was suicidal. Maybe he hated women. Maybe because society taught him to hate women, he he killed that woman. There's so many different reasons. Uh, as to why someone would kill someone, and the news tends to report on things that they know will, you know, cause people to click on things. Uh, you know, man walks into McDonald's and kills someone. No one knows why, and there's no good theories as to why. No one's going to click on that. People say crazy. You know, man with mental illness uh, is allowed to walk the streets and kills women. You know, it's, you're going to get more clicks. And there's all these other factors, like well. Men are more like men, you know, when so statistically, men are much more likely to kill people than women are. So the when when we look at risk factors in murder, someone having a severe mental illness is a very, very small risk factor compared to your gender. So when we look at murders, why don't we say, that bipolar man killed that person in the McDonald's because he's a man. Because when you're a man, your your risk of murdering people is much higher. But all of us understand that most men don't murder people. So when we see a man, we don't go, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. Because most of us understand that most men don't kill people. But all of us understand that most murderers are men. But when it comes to schizophrenia, somehow we look at a schizophrenic person. We're like, "Well, that person's going to murder me," even though the the risk factor is so much smaller than your gender. I hope this makes sense. Anyway, and like I said, when we actually give people proper treatment, the risk factor goes goes away. So that's on us. That's our fault. So not only are we stigmatizing them and dehumanizing them and mistreating them and not allocating enough tax dollars to help them, which is, which is what it takes, because there's plenty of people out there trying to help. But as a society and as a government, we're not spending enough money on this. So not only do we just ostracize them, mistreat them, not give them the help that they need, but then we call then we associate them with with murder. We associate them with bad behavior when we're the one treating them like crap. It's similar to in the Deep South in the 1800s when uh, the white supremacists would paint black men as these uh, people who would sexually assault white women and they would lynch them and kill them when statistically it was 100% the other way around. (laughs) I mean, not percentage-wise, I'm I'm being facetious, but or exaggeratory, but the uh, it's like that when we're the bad we're the bad people in this situation. <laughs> we are not doing what we need to do for these people, and all it would take would be a uh, uh, taking money a little bit away from the next stealth bomber and putting it towards this. We could double the uh, budget for this sort of thing in governments and save so many people's lives and prove so many individuals and families, we would get a lot of people off the street. We would reduce a lot of petty crime because, you know, the, the route is this. You're living a normal life. 
you probably had some trauma in life. At the age of about 22, you start experiencing some symptoms. You start to have some hallucinations. You start hearing voices. You start your brain. It's hard to think straight. And you maybe people kind of look at you funny and you lose your job. And friends and family start to kind of distance themselves from you because they can't really figure you out. You're sort of an oddball. Now you're alone and you're drinking all the time because you're just – or smoking weed all the time. You're just trying to cope. Your symptoms are getting worse. At some point, it boils over. Someone sees you muttering to yourself at the bus stop and they call the police. The police show up. This is a whole other problem because the police show up, you know, guns drawn sometimes and expect someone in the state of a full-blown psychotic episode to comply with people screaming at them anyway. So you might end up in prison for a little bit and then uh, you are determined that you have a mental illness. You finally get treatment but now it's court-ordered, this kind of thing. Well, you get put on some meds. And maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's a lot of side effects to the, to the meds. But you're alone. No one wants to hang out with you. People have you know, fled from you years ago. Maybe you have a family member who can take care of you. Maybe you don't. Maybe your family is part of the problem. They're the one who traumatized you to begin with. Trauma is associated with these, these disorders. And you are alone and you don't know what to do. You don't have a job. And you get kicked out of your place. So now you're on the streets. So you become addicted to heroin because it's the one drug that makes you feel a little bit better. And you slowly lose access to your antipsychotic medications. You're hallucinating all the time. And you're on the streets and you need money for food. You need money for heroin. And what are you going to do? Well, you're going you're gonna to shoplift. You're going to steal stuff. You might even mug people. I don't know. You might beg. Um, you might break into homes, take their stuff, sell it at a pawn shop, get your fix. And that person we look at and say they don't have willpower or they don't have a moral compass. And as a, and then and then we and then they break a law and we put them in prison. And statistics show that there are a lot of people serving time right now who have mental, severe mental illness. And if we had just had a rational approach to this extremely known phenomenon in our society, this would never happen. So let's rewind the clock. They're, you know, they're 23 and they're starting to have some symptoms. We have a massive campaign that's been going on for 30 years and everyone, everyone understands the signs of psychosis. And so the friends and family say, oh, maybe our friend is, is developing a psychotic uh, episode or, or mental illness. Well, we know who to call, 1-800-PSYCHOSIS hotline because I know exactly who to call because I learned in third grade that's who you call. And there's nothing wrong with having a psychotic friend. So I call that hotline. The hotline is called. That person talks with you. They go to the home. They're nice. They're not cops. They say, so how's it going? And, and the person is like, well, I don't know. My brain's not working quite right. Okay, well, we have government funds that 
allow us to spend the next 30 hours with you because we know that early intervention is important, and so let's work with you. Let's connect you with a caseworker, a psychiatrist, a physician, a uh, family therapist. You know, let's have, the government is going to pay for this, and that's the key. And I always, you know, people are always talking about how, well, we need more services or we need more awareness. No, we need more money. <laughs> you, you know, these services are not free. <laughs> they don't just spring from the earth. These are things that that you need to we need someone needs to pay for. And the psychotic individual doesn't have money, so it has to come from the government. And we all win monetarily in this situation. We should do this just out of the goodness of our own heart, but we also win monetarily because you understand uh, the amount of money you have to spend down the road to try to cure the person of their heroin addiction and account for all the crimes they're committing or at least try to you know house them and you know try to get them to get a job when you know they they haven't worked for 15 years so early intervention and there are times when people when when we do do this you know it does this does happen and it does work and re- there's tons of research but the fact is is there's just no political will and there's no will among the people so so anyway that was a tangent. But to get back to Anonymous Upper Tier Patron, you are saying, hey, you know, I, I have bipolar and I watch movies and there's all this association with violence. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, it'd be like, like I said, it'd be like just associating any male as, you know, look at that man. He's going to murder someone. <laughs> it's like all of us understand that's, that's one, statistically stupid and really just prejudicial. So – and again, I just want to be clear that that's a very, very small risk factor, and that risk factor can be reduced to to zero if we treat these people humanely. All right, let's take a break, and we get back. Let's read more emails. All right, we're back from the break. Uh, let's go to upper tier patron Megan. She has a question. I was wondering if you have any advice on becoming more differentiated other than going to therapy, of course, end of email. Yeah, going to therapy would be one thing. But differentiation is something that you can do a lot on your own. Uh, the short answer is is to read Extraordinary Relationships by Roberta Gilbert. It's a book for lay people and clinicians, I think. It's a book that I assigned to my students, and it's a good book. It goes through all the different things. Uh, it's basically it basically comes down to two different two different things. One is that you want to learn how to notice your own emotional state. So you're in a you're in a conflict with your spouse. Most people are not aware of the fact that they're in a fight or flight uh, phys- physiology. They're just like, well, I'm just having a conversation with my wife and I hate her right now. But what's happening is that the physiology is so aroused and heightened that it's really hard to think straight. It's really hard to feel good. It's really hard to listen. We know this through research that when you're in a fight or flight, your brain, certain functions of the brain uh, become attenuated. Essentially, blood stops going to certain parts of your brain and though, you know, to, because when a saber-toothed tiger is chasing you, you don't need to think high, high math. You don't need to think high philosophy. You need to think 
of which way do I run and how fast. <laughs> That's all you need to know. And so blood and oxygen goes toward your heart rate. So, you know, heart rate will go up, your muscles. And so people will get red because, you know, blood capillaries, you know, I'm not a physiologist. I don't know all the different things, but you know my, you know, I hope you understand my point. And so when you're in a social threat, uh, we, our body reacts to it the same way we would react to a physical threat, which isn't a very good system, by the way. Um, but we're, uh, you know, we're not a perfectly evolved creature. And thus, when we're in a social conflict, our brain actually doesn't work quite as well. And so that's one thing is to become very aware. So, but that's just one state to be aware of. And when, when you become aware of it, then you can differentiate between your feelings and your thoughts. You can differentiate between your instinctual reactivity and your rational mind. So, for example, you're in a fight with your spouse and you take a beat to think, okay, what's my heart rate right now? Or what kind of arousal am I having right now? Um, on a scale from 1 to 10, I'm probably about a 7 because I feel tension in my chest. I can kind of feel a little bit of a sweat coming on. I, I, I've, I've, I look at my Apple Watch and I see that my heart rate is 95, which it wouldn't normally be if I was just sitting here. And so I must be like a 7 or 8 out of 10 on the stress scale. I, I, it's hard for me to really notice it, but I definitely have that. Okay, given that I am in a high state of arousal and fight or flight, I have to understand that my notions come from that place. And right now I want to call my wife a bad name. I want to call my spouse out on their behavior. But I know that given my emotional state, I might not be thinking straight right now. And so is it, is it a good idea to call my spouse a name? Is it a good idea to have a bad tone with my spouse? Is it a good idea to assume my spouse doesn't understand me and is a bad person? Because that's, that's my instinctual reaction right now. But that comes from a place of emotion, which isn't always the best guide. Emotionally, I feel as though my spouse is a bad person and deserves to be called a bad name, but my mind knows better. My intellectual mind knows, no, I know enough to know that it's never okay to call someone a bad name, particularly your spouse. I feel like I deserve to call my spouse a bad name, but I know and I think that calling my spouse a bad name is wrong. So that's differentiating between your feelings and your thoughts. You're reflecting on yourself and saying, this is what's happening for me, and what do I think about it? The fused and undifferentiated person, the, their feelings have completely uh, are their, their feelings and thoughts are completely indistinguishable to them. So when they feel like they want to call their spouse a bad name, they reflect on it and say, yes, I'm going to call my spouse a bad name. And then later on, they regret it. So that's one thing. It's, it's a mindful, it's like a specific mindfulness activity where you try to become very aware of your state and reflect on it. And the other thing you can do in advance is to think about like, okay, now that I'm calm and I'm not under any kind of threat, what are my general values in life? 
Well, my general values are to not raise my voice, to not have a bad tone, to not accuse people of things without really thinking about it, to not call people bad names. And then when you go into the fight, you can remember, okay, I feel like I want to accuse this person of something, but I know my values are to not randomly accuse people of things without really thinking about it first. So having that ability to differentiate means that you can hold on to your value system and your goals even when you're aroused. Now, Bowenian therapists and, and Bowen himself recognize that most people on a scale from 1 to 100, with, hun- with 100 being the highest differentiated person in the world, the highest in reality person is probably like 60 or 70. So Bowen himself said it's very hard for anyone to achieve anything beyond like a, a, a rating of 60 or 70 on the differentiation scale. So the most differentiated person in the world is still a third of the time undifferentiated. So it, we're, we're, we're asking a lot of ourselves and we're going to fail a lot of the time because we're just human beings with a, with a bunch of goo between our ears trying to think straight. So that's one differentiation activity that you can do. You can think before, during, and after along. You just keep repeating that process and you know, often people can become more differentiated in general. The other thing that you do is to differentiate between yourselves and other people. So one common example is your spouse is like your, your, your spouse is driving and you're a passenger and your spouse is in traffic and getting upset and you're starting to get anxious, observing your spouse get upset. Well, in this moment, you can utilize your differentiation techniques to further your differentiation by saying, his anger is not my anger. He is angry right now, but I'm not angry right now, and he can have his feelings, and I don't need to do anything about it. He's having feelings, and I want to fuse with him. I want to become undifferentiated with him and become angry with him or scared of his anger. But his anger has nothing to do with me. He's just angry at a bunch of people on the road. And those are his feelings. Now, you know, there are specific situations where you might want to do something, but remaining differentiated during it is important. So, for example, let's say that he's starting to drive really fast. He, he gets angry and he starts driving really, really fast. Well, the undifferentiated person will become overwhelmed with their husband's anger and yell at their husband, stop driving so fast, you know, okay. The differentiated person would say, okay, I'm going to take a beat here. I'm going to think straight. His anger is not my anger. He's having a moment. I don't need to have a moment. It's not on, it's not my fault he's having a moment. Everything's fine. He's, and it's normal that people have moments. It's okay. But he's starting to drive fast and it's starting to concern me. How do I, what do I say to him to get him to slow down? Because I need him to slow down. But how do I say it in a differentiated manner? Well, I want to tell him that he's a terrible driver, or I want to tell him that that he has road rage, or I want to yell at him. But my thinking mind understands that that's probably not the best idea. He's he's probably going to – it's probably going to be hard for him to be receptive to any constructive feedback at this point. So I'm going to have to be very careful about the way I say it. So I'm going to say it like, honey, I know you're upset, but you're scaring me. Can you, can you slow down a little bit? 
It's it's. I understand that you're frustrated with people on the road. I get that, but you're kind of scaring me by driving fast. Okay, so that's a differentiated not only in you in relation to him, but also between your feelings and your thoughts. So those are the two activities that you can do that everyone can do. What are my feelings right now, and how do I think about it? You know, what are my instincts telling me to do, and what so I, I often give this other example. So uh, sometimes Bowen Bowenian theory is misperceived as some kind of anti-feeling theory, and it could be argued that it originated from that because you know it originated in the fifties when people hated feelings in general anyway. But it has evolved over the years, and contemporary Bowenian thinkers, such as myself, will say the following: that. Sometimes emotions are, are a wonderful guide to our life. So let's say that someone has a gun and is you know, walking through the mall and you feel afraid. Well, your body wants to run. Well, it's a good idea to run. <laughs> or another situation is your child is getting close to the road and your body wants to grab the child and yank them away from traffic. Well, it's probably a good idea to do that. Your feelings were a good guide. And stopping and reflecting on it is probably not a good idea. Uh, another example is you are having an intimate sexual moment with your partner. And you are overwhelmed with physical sensations and intimacy and closeness. And in that moment, it's hard for you to differentiate between you and your partner. It's also hard for you to differentiate between your feelings and your thoughts. And in those moments, you think, well, this is a safe place to do this. I want to lose myself. I want to go with my feelings right now because it's a good idea I do that. If I think too much about this, it'll ruin it. <laughs> if I separate myself too much from my spouse, it's going to ruin it. So I want to become one. I want to react instinctively and emotionally and spontaneously in this moment because I know from experience this is a safe place to do that. So in those moments, fusion or – not fusion, sorry. Going with your emotional guidance system is a good idea. Uh, but you have to be able to reflect on it first. So that's the key is the differentiated person looks at their feelings and says yes or no. That's the key. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from patron Stella from London. She writes, I have the avoidant personality type. I believe I am compassionate and sensitive to others, but I really, really find it difficult to feel my feelings. What methods would you recommend to help improve feeling my feelings? I'm in my mid-50s, and whilst friends seem to admire my cool, detached essence, I'd really like to experience a warm, connected relationship before I kick the bucket. End of email. Yeah, I like the way you put that. Patron Stella from London. So the first thing I'll say is, in terms of terminology, you're saying you're avoidant personality type, but I think what you're referring to is avoidant attachment type. So we have a bit of a confusing thing here in that, and sometimes I make a mistake and will interchange these, but they need to be delineated, which is avoidant attachment style is the attachment style in which as a young person, you turn away from attachments as a way of protecting yourself from rejection. 
and you, as a result, have a hard time feeling your feelings. You have a hard time noticing your feelings, and we call that avoidant attachment style. Avoidant personality or avoidant personality disorder is actually a severe form of social anxiety that's based on a schema of defectiveness, meaning that the person believes that there's something deeply wrong with them, and it's obvious to everyone else. And so they avoid relationships because of the the foregone conclusion that everyone understands that they are defective, so in, either physically or uh, emotionally or socially or something. So avoidant personality disorder is essentially a deeper form of social anxiety. Anyway, so I think what you're talking about is avoidant attachment style. And so you're saying that you have it hard to feel your feelings. So you're asking, how do I improve feeling my feelings? Well, it's complicated, but in a nutshell, you have feelings. And that's the thing that a lot of avoidant people don't realize is a lot of avoidant people will think, well, I don't have feelings or my feelings are so small that I, you know, it's hard for me to notice them. That's probably not true. I don't know. But in all likelihood, what's happening is you just don't notice your feelings. You probably have a lot of feelings. And I find this to be very true for people. But they're in a kind of a proto state, like um, the way a, a two-year-old might feel the feelings instead of the way an adult might feel the feelings because the feelings don't have a chance to evolve over time. Anyway, so that's number one is, is assume that you have feelings down there because that'll help. The next thing is to try to mentally and physically connect with them. So I'll give, it, I'll give myself as, as an example. I've told this story before, but when I was in grade school, I taught myself not to cry by converting my tears into anger. I literally would, when I was tearing up, I would, I would clench my fists and clench my jaw and I would get angry and I would stop crying. And eventually I just never cried again or very rarely would cry. And I, in my 20s, decided I wanted to get back to crying again because I just figured there was something incredibly unhealthy about never crying. And so I remember, uh, I assumed that the tears were down there. That's one thing. And when I was in a situation where I thought, you know, I bet you I would cry right now. Now, if you asked me in the moment, do you have the, the kind of capacity for crying? I might be like, I don't think so. I don't think, I'm, I don't think I'm really capable of being sad the way that other people are being sad. Um, but, uh, but on the other hand, I did assume that anyway. So I might be in a movie or I might be in a, a funeral or a wedding or, you know, something. And I'd see other people crying and I'd be like, you know what? I, I feel like this would be a moment where I would cry. And I, I can't explain it precisely, but I remember trying to connect with my tear ducts, if that makes any sense. And also trying to connect with my own heart, literally like feet, trying to, and that's really the way that I see it is the avoidant attachment style person has to actually create neuronal connections with their body that have been either eliminated or become very weak. And so I would have to notice a lot of it has to do with noticing your upper chest. A lot of our emotions come from our upper torso, your heart, your lungs, your diaphragm, your shoulders, 
your chest, your back, you know, just not all your emotions, but a lot of them do. And so, you know, some emotions in your gut as well, your neck, but really your upper chest is where a lot. So if you can, if you can just be mindful of like, okay, what is happening in my chest right now? What, what's happening in my breathing right now? And as I did that, I would get a little bit of a tear. Of, oh, and then I, another six months later, I'd get two tears. And then two years later, I would have five tears. And then something happened <laughs> and all the tears came out. And now they just come aplenty. I will watch a touching commercial bet- while watching a football game and cry, <laughs> sob. I, as I talk about it, I want to cry right now. I don't know what that's about, but now I cry very, very easily, and I, and I, I'm, I'm proud of myself that I actually achieved that. And crying is a beautiful, wonderful, healthy thing to do. So I don't know, patron Stella, if, if you know, if this is helpful to you, but you know, there are all, obviously all sorts of emotions: hurt, pain, sadness. Um, you know, fear, jealousy, uh, disgust, all the basics. So that's what I'll say to that. The other part of it has to do with relational feeling. So to the avoidant attachment people, I always say the following, which is you have to get in touch with your vulnerability. Avoidant attached people, narcissistic people, and not all avoidant are narcissistic, but most narcissistic are avoidant, have a really hard time being vulnerable, truly vulnerable in front of other people. They might act vulnerable in front of other people, but not really vulnerable. Because they learned when they were two or three years old that being vulnerable leads to bad, bad times. So being vulnerable, like really vulnerable, the way that you see other people being vulnerable, that's the way you have to be vulnerable. Like you're in a work meeting and you're having a, you're having a bad day. And you tell everyone that you're having a bad day and you break down crying. That level of vulnerability. Now, I'm not saying work meetings. I'm Mostly what I'm saying is in your close relationships. So you had a bad day at work and you come home and you tell your spouse and you just say, I need you to listen to me for half an hour. I need you to hold me and I'm just going to cry and I, I just don't know what to do. And I really need you to, to just comfort me as I go through what's happening for me right now. Now – what what happened at work that day wasn't the end of the world, but it was, you know, it was troublesome to you. What a lot of avoidant attached people will do is they will drink or smoke or something to avoid their feelings. But so vulnerability, telling others, I am sad, I am worried, I need you. Because those are accurate things to say. Everyone needs everyone. Everyone needs people. Everyone is quote unquote needy. And so that's the other thing I'll say. All right, let's go into another email. All right, this next email is a good one. Uh, Listener Renee from Canada. She writes, everything is perfect in my relationship, except I have a very low sex drive. It makes me not want to have sex as often while he has a very high sex drive. It makes me wonder if it's because it's not the right relationship. Is there any kind of psychology behind this? I'm very curious to know. So there are a lot of people out there who have questions around this. And what I'll say is that you're at the first step, which is to notice that you have a different sex drive than your partner and you have questions. At the end of the road, 
there will be so many things that you will discover about yourself if you go down this road, so many things you'll discover about your relationship, so many things you'll discover about your sexuality, and so many things uh, that you have yet to see. Uh, because the, these sorts of things are very complex. Sometimes they're very easy. You know, I've I've worked with couples where, um, you know, one of the partners had low sex drive, and we had one session, sort of talking about what they wanted sexually, and maybe you know, tweaking here and tweaking there, and and they'll come back and report that their their sex life is is going really well. So occasionally, I would say maybe. I don't know, 5% of the time, it's probably a little high, that there's an easy answer to the low sex drive or to, you know, yeah, to the low sex drive. More, most, more, much more often, the person with low sex drive tries 55 different things and nothing works. Now, that isn't to say that there isn't a solution. But the other thing we have to recognize is that we will tend to pathologize people with low sex drive when why do we pathologize it? Uh, there are some people who are asexual or demisexual who have just recognized, you know what, I, I have a low sex drive um, and that's okay. In the, in, this, in the same way, it's, all, it's okay to have a very high sex drive. It's okay to want to have sex three times a day. That's fine as long as you know, your life is in order, nothing wrong with that. It's also fine to say, I don't feel like having sex, but maybe on my birthday <laughs> or on his birthday or you know once every 2 or 3 months now it absolutely sucks to be in a relationship where there's a very big difference in sex drive and so these are one of those things that you want to work out prior to uh, you know getting married but then there are also situations where you start off with a very high sex drive and then it disappears there are so many reasons for this and let me just rattle off things that i've found that in my clients off the top of my head. One is birth control pills. Birth control pills, a side effect is low sex drive, by the way. So now that you can have sex all the time, you don't have any, you don't have any drive to do it. Um, not obviously for everyone, but that is something that can happen. So sometimes trying different birth control methods or even different pills, different hormones can change that. Uh, depression, obviously, anxiety. Getting back to depression, it's one of the first things that will go, honestly. When you're depressed, one of the first things that will go is is your drive for having sex. And I want to be clear that, that there's a difference between low sex drive and not wanting to have sex because there are, there are people who have low sex drive, but they still like having sex and they still want to have sex. But it's just like, you know, once every few weeks or, uh, you know, and there are different ways of looking at it. There, there's sex drive where it's like, only every month they get horny or they don't want to have sex more than a, than a certain amount of time. Anyway, so there's that kind of low sex drive. And then there's other people who they don't want to have sex at all and they'll tolerate it sometimes. And so sometimes you want to delineate like are you, are, are you someone who just doesn't want to have sex at all? Okay. Another, another thing that I found as the factor that is worth focusing on is the status of the relationship. Another thing is how how the two people have sex because a lot of women are taught that they're supposed to endure sex and men are supposed to take sex. There's problems to both sides potentially, but a lot of women that I talk to, I find that they've never 
been in the driver's seat when it came to sex, uh, sometimes just because they've just considered themselves to be the object of sex or the pleaser in the in the bedroom. And some people have been assaulted. And so, you know, they obviously weren't in the driver's seat then. So with a lot of women in particular, and but men too, I will find that uh, starting from the beginning of just like, what do you want to do sexually? If let's say you have a low sex drive, you want to have sex once, once every six months. Okay, fine. Every time you do that, what do you want? And and a lot of people, be, I, I I don't I don't mind doing this. Sometimes this feels okay, and that indicates to me that this person either was stigmatized regarding sex or abused regarding sex or some, something something very normal happened to them in our society that caused them to not have a clear a sense of who they are sexually, and that can take a long time to develop. Sometimes I refer to this as as our inner perv, our inner pervert. Every, not everyone has this because some people just don't really care about sex. But among people who have the capacity to care about sex, everyone has what I call an inner pervert, meaning that. And I try to you know be funny about it. It's like everyone has that that drive to to do something sexually, you know, uh, common sort of perverts that we look at in public would be like the guy who masturbates with a high heel shoe in his mouth or something. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Uh, but everyone has something like that, even if it's very vanilla, right. Even if it's like, I can't wait to missionary that guy, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but everyone has that. And I find that well, not everyone, people who are allosexual or people who are not asexual or demisexual have that capacity for that thing that they just really, really want to do that really gets them going, you know, and maybe it's a, maybe it's 50 different things that get them going. But I find that some people, again, higher rate of women that when I ask them this question, they're just like, I've never had that before. I don't even know what you're talking about. I see other people doing that to me. They will there, you know, I'll see people having sex with me and I, I get the sense that they're that their inner pervert is coming out and I'm the object of that sexual energy, but I've never had that sexual energy towards other people. And so so sometimes it's a matter of starting from the beginning with those people and a, a, a path of self-discovery. Now, not always, obviously, but that can be other factors are early sexual abuse can very much make sex a bad thing to you, not only psychologically, but physically. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of psychological and physical things that need to happen in order for sex to be enjoyable. Uh, you know, blood flow, mindset, relaxation, safety. And if you were assaulted growing up, you don't associate sex with those nice things. And so there's there's that. And then you can literally have trauma being triggered in, in the midst of sex which obviously would reduce one's sex drive. So recovery from that would be in order to see. Now, the thing with that is that we don't know, with a lot of these things, we don't know what the true state of the person is sexually until we remove the barriers. It's sort of like um, we are trying to see into a closet, but there's all these sheets in the way. <laughs> and and we don't know what's behind the sheets. 
behind, you know, sometimes there's this assumption that behind the sheets is this, is this very normal sexual person, but we don't know that we have to get rid of the trauma. We have to recover from the trauma. We have to deprogram. We have to take away the, maybe, you know, the birth control pill, a change to a different thing. We have to make the person not depressed. And behind that, we might find that the person actually is asexual. There's no guarantee that once you get rid of all those barriers, that the person is going to have a normal sex drive behind those barriers. It's it's just unknown until until you, but you have to get rid of those barriers first before you can really even know what the true self is, right? And so that's another thing that I'll I'll do with people. Um there's there's a lot of other things that I could talk about, you know, physiologically and psychologically, but th- those are those are the big ones. And so uh, listener Renee, you're saying, you know, everything's perfect in my relationship. I have low sex drive. He has high sex drive. It makes me wonder if it's because I'm not in the right relationship. Well, it, you know, that is something to investigate. But the fact that you have low sex drive isn't by any means an indication that you're in a bad relationship. <laughs> um, there's this assumption that if you love your partner, you automatically will want to have sex with them all the time because that's what's portrayed in the movies. But that's that's definitely not the case. It certainly can be the case, but it certainly is not necessarily the case. You can absolutely be 100 billion percent in love with someone and not really feel like having sex with them. Like I said, there's a lot of reasons, potential reasons for that. The other thing I'll, I'll say is that in my explorations with people's libidos, I have found that there's a, there's a percentage of people that will – start down the journey uh, of trying to discover their their own sexuality. And at the end of the journey with me and with other experts, they it, they still don't really know. So I don't want to paint this as though you do all the right therapy and the right explorations and you're gonna you're gonna find resolution. Because for some people they just never find resolution. You know, like Say you just love your partner and you're like, let's get married. Let's spend the rest of our lives together. And, and you have kids and you go down this road of discovery that takes you five, ten years. And at the end of that road, you're, you're, you, still have low sell, you still have low sex drive and you're, and you're not really quite sure why. That happens sometimes. And so that's another part of the stigma that we have to remove, which is that it's okay to have low sex drive, one – it's also okay to never know why you have low sex drive. And, and it's also okay to go on a journey to figure it out and not really find anything. <laughs> you, you went on a journey and now you know you uncovered, you know, you unturned, overturned a lot of rocks and you didn't find anything. So you don't need to look in those places anymore. But, but that's okay. A lot of people with low sex drive are pathologized and they're made to feel like, they need to figure it out or or there's this very easy solution. You know, you go online or you talk to friends. There, there's always like, well, you know, it must be because your husband doesn't know what he's doing in the sack or it must be because you don't really love him or it's it's this, it's that. And it, and I don't, I don't appreciate that. <laughs> I'm sure the people with low sex drive don't appreciate that. The other thing I want to point out in, you know, just as an asterisk is that many men have low sex drive in relation to their – heterosexual relationships. Many men do, but women are more free to talk about it because when a man comes forward and says they have a low sex drive, they're essentially uh, opening themselves up to being ridiculed as not a real man. Uh, 
In fact, a lot of women will stigmatize their uh, their husbands when they don't want to have sex. So we need to reduce that association. It's okay all for anyone to have low sex drive. It's it's okay. It it's quite common, particularly in long term relationships, and it's it's okay to to work on it, but it's also okay to experience it. It's just. It just is what it is, you know? Now, if you're a high sex drive person and you're suffering with a low sex drive partner and you want to talk with that person about their low sex drive, it's a campaign that you go on. You don't want to just be like, what's wrong with you? You know, uh, how come you don't want to have sex with me? You know, it, it's important to go into it with a long-term approach. And obviously going to a couple's therapist and a you know, certified sex therapist would be in order as well. All right. How are we doing on time? Let's do one more email. All right. This next email is from patron Nicole from Toronto. She, she asks, one of my closest friends called me emotionally unavailable and I was hurt by it and confused as to why they would perceive me that way. I was wondering if you could maybe perhaps talk about the idea of emotional unavailability, what it means, what it looks like, why, why it happens, etc. cetera. Uh, end of that part of the email. Well, it's hard for me to know what your friend meant by emotionally unavailable. What I'm guessing is that your friend was hurt by something and labeled you as something. So I would ask your close friend, when you say that I am emotionally unavailable, what are you talking about exactly? What how have I hurt you? That would be the question I would ask. You know, what did I do that hurt you? Because I really want to know that. Then you're going to know what they mean by emotionally unavailable. Because based on what you have said, I, I have no idea what that means. What it, what it could be is that when your friend comes to you with their own vulnerability, you don't attend to their feelings very well. Maybe you don't listen well. Maybe you talk about yourself too much. Maybe when they were going through something very difficult, you didn't reach out to them enough. You know, who knows? Uh, so that's that. Going on with your email. Also, I was wondering, have you ever worked with clients who have experienced abusive romantic relationships as a teenager? Uh, I'm curious about how an abusive relationship during one's teenage years could affect their development. Blah, blah, blah. End of email. Yeah, so I, you know, as y'all know, I often will talk about early childhood development and how that affects later personality and relationship style. But absolutely, uh, when you're a teenager, the the first romantic or friend relationships because they tend to be more intense during those years. They can be intense before that as well, but but throughout one's life, any kind teenage life included, any kind of abusive relationship is going to affect you. Uh, you can have, uh, you know, one sort of personality and attachment style and and relational life, and then at the age of thirty five, be somehow traumatized in some way by your partner. And from then, from that point forward, you're going to have some interesting side effects from that. So, the it's not as if things that happened after the age of five don't affect you because they do. The difference is that neurologically, our 
personality foundations are established very early in life. Can they be changed? Yes, but it's harder to change them later in life. You have to have a lot of experience. The, a very rough uh, way of looking at it is things that take you a year in in preschool to learn or change about your you know neurologic uh, personality, your neurology will take you 10 or 20 years as an adult, which there are analogies to this, like learning a new language, right? When you're three years old, learning a new language is easy. I mean, learning learning the language that your parents speak is you learn very quickly. I mean, you think about kids, by the time they're three years old, they're, they're speaking pretty well. <laughs> by five, they're, you know, complex ideas are coming out of their face without any accent, this kind of thing. Well, trying to, at the age of 45, learn a brand new language, particularly one that has nothing – like if you are from the United States, if you try to learn Chinese, you know, if you're from the United States and you try to learn, say, Swedish or German or Spanish, it's a little easier obviously because there's some analogies. But trying to learn a completely different syntax, a completely different syllable system is really what I'm – you know, what it's like to learn your very first language. It could take – all of us understand that to become even just sort of fluent in Chinese, it would take you years and years and years, right? So the same goes for your attachment style or extroversion, introversion or the working model of the self. How – you know, do you see yourself as a good person, a medium person or a bad person? At the age of three, it takes a short amount of time to establish how you feel about yourself. When you're 35, it might take you 10, 20 years of therapy to change how you feel about yourself. So uh, so when you're a teenager and you're 15 and you go through a, a difficult experience, it, it might so, – so let's say that as a kid, you're raised pretty well. And you have secure attachment style and you have a good working model of self, good working model of other. You have a sense of who you are. And then luck of the draw, your first partner in high school is physically abusive and controlling. And they beat you down. They make you feel bad about yourself. Okay, You break up from that relationship and there are reactions to that. You are afraid of romantic relationships. You're skeptical of other people. But you – still basically have a good working model of self, meaning that you see yourself as a good enough person and, and you basically trust other human beings. But you're rattled. You know, you're so, – wait a second. Can I trust other people? And if you're given enough uh, security, you will recover from that abusive relationship relatively quickly as compared to someone who didn't grow up with that kind of experience. Um. But can an abusive – can you be raised well as a child, go through an abusive relationship as a teenager and can that be sort of be the seed that grows into a lot of difficulty in life? Yeah. But it would have to be follow. you know, you get out of the relationship and everyone rejects you and your next relationship is also bad. You know, it, ha it would have to uh, – or the abusive relationship was so abusive and, and for such a long time – that it was enough time to change your personality, essentially. Anyway, 
I don't know if I like my answer to that question. It was kind of rambly. But anyway, it's the end of the episode. And if you're still with me right now, you must be one of those people that likes this podcast enough to stick till the very end. <laughs> so thanks for sticking to the end. And let me know what you think. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Thank you.